A boy, cursed by the hatred that runs in his heart, is cast out. The tale of a man whose insatiable want to explore and learn sees him stumble onto an artifact with great power and great consequence. And a swamp brings memories that are all too consuming to the mind of those that move through it. Welcome, listeners, to your stories. In order, El Silbon, The Man Who Whistles, The Art of Jacob Emery by Peter Devine, and Crossing the Swamp by Band in CP. Now today, I have a wonderful surprise. Mates, I have a new patron supporter in the Earl Grey Enforcer tier. Crikey, mate! Two patrons in such a short time. Today, I want you all to welcome Robert Fisher. As my new Earl Grey Enforcer, raise your glasses of tea and let's drink in their honor. And I want to take this opportunity to drink in every supporter of this show's honor. You really make a difference to this podcast, immensely so. Whether it's a review, whether it's donations, I just want to say thank you so much. And today, thank you, Robert Fisher, and welcome to the family. On that note, I'm going to kick off today's episode with my white tea warlords leading the charge, Fantabulous Matthew J. Bauer. Crikey awesome Maya, the wondrous divided by zero. And I own cows, the leader of the herds. I said it before, and I'll say it again. You people are just fantastic. I named this tier of support to exemplify how rare and precious you are to me, and you truly are. Thank you for your level of support. And my El Grey Enforcers, let me kick it off with Robert Fisher as my brand new Enforcer, Chad Warren, Just Heather Lee Bauer, Lorraine Crisanto, Mace Joe, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, and Michelangelo Yacone. Thank you all for your support. Now let's dig in to today's stories. They are quite different from my normal tales. So turn the lights off, the sound up, and get ready for something special just like you. The Man Who Whistles When I was a little kid, my mother would tell me about El Silbon, or The Man Who Whistles, in English. The legend of El Silbon varies from person to person, but this is the version I grew up with, and personally, the one I find most frightening. There once was a boy who lived happily with his mother, father and grandfather in Los Llanos, a region in Venezuela. They lived a simple life of farming. However, the boy the parents raised was a very spoiled child. He would not eat certain foods and would cry out until his parents pleased him. One day, the boy asked his father to hunt deer for them to eat as the deer was his favorite. The father decided to please his son and hunt a deer for him to eat. Sadly, after hours of searching, he failed to return with anything. Ever so hungry, upon seeing that his father had returned empty-handed, he took his father's hunting knife and killed him with it. 
At that moment, the mother and the grandfather rushed inside, only to find the boy standing over his father's corpse. As the mother cried for her husband, the grandfather took it upon himself to punish the boy. First, he tied the boy to a tree and with a whip, he struck his back repeatedly until he bled. Then, he would squeeze lemons on his back. And finally, he gave him a sack filled with his father's remains and cast him away into the plains to carry them as he set the dogs after him. But before he unleashed the dogs, as the boy walked away, his grandfather cursed him. Eso no se le hace es su padre. Maldito eres patoa la vida. You should not have done that to your father. You will be damned for the rest of your life. His grandfather yelled as he released his grip on the ropes and freed the dogs. As the dogs chased him, the boy whistled in a very distinct manner. Following the traditional musical scale, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Si, Do, or C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, until the dogs finally caught up to him. And so the boy was cursed, left to wander the plains, bringing death to anyone who he may happen to cross. Unlike other urban legends of my country, El Silbon does not pursue a specific brand of victims. He is regarded as an omen of death for anyone who wanders the plains at night. He would follow his victims, first from afar, until gradually catching up to them. For at first, you will hear his whistling coming very close, prompting you to run away. And as soon as you hear the whistling fade into the distance, you will feel relief, as you think this means you are safe. But in reality, the further the whistle, the closer he is. He will have an old farming hat. He will be very skinny, but what will set him apart is that he will be carrying a large sack which clinks and clacks as he walks. Some say that inside the sack are the bones of his latest victims, but more likely, they are the bones of his father. He is destined to carry them forever. The Art of Jacob Emery Ghost stories? Nah. We don't have anything like that around here. We do have the story of Jacob, but that's about as close as you'll get. You really want to know? Well, I'm not supposed to tell you, but alright. Just no interrupting. I don't have the patience for it. How to describe Jacob Emery? Well, I guess you could say he was the kind of guy you could never take notice of. This isn't to say he was a bad kid. In any sense, many people in this town thought he was the most reliable person for an odd job in the state, but he never really excelled in anything. He was living proof behind the statement, Jack of all trades, ace of none. Most of this though was due to his own lack of will. He dabbled in damn near everything this town could offer him. Automobiles, radio operation, store management, what have you. But he never stuck with anything. His friends and workers went after him about it a number of times, but everybody got the same unsatisfying response. It just wasn't enough. Needless to say, any friends he kept were either very patient 
or never spoke of the matter altogether. It was probably inevitable, then, that Jacob would leave to go abroad. I don't remember where he went, but I think Gertrude down the street knew before she passed on. You'll have to scout someone else if you ever get curious. In any case, no one ever tried to stop him. Everybody thought that a little travel would stamp the ambition out of him, or else feed it until it was no longer an issue. Hell, we even gave him a sending-off party, which I thought was pretty nice of everybody. So anyway, he was gone for six, seven years? Can't remember. You'll have to check with someone else about that, too. Anyways, he came back eventually, and he had changed, obviously enough. He was amiable, energetic, all smiles all the time, and we all quickly learned why. He showed us a souvenir he'd brought back, a solid black stick, the length of a pencil, but the texture of chalk. We all wondered why on earth such a simple thing would prompt such a spring in his step, until he gave his demonstration. He took a piece of paper, and with this stick, God, there's got to be a better word for it, with this stick, he, he drew a crude circle. It dropped, and rested on the border of the paper, like a stone. It didn't leave the paper, but it acted out on it. Sort of like an old movie projector on a screen. Son, I know how crazy that sounds. And if you feel like playing skeptic, then you can leave an old man to his craziness. But I know what I saw. Even if everyone's been hushing it up, and that stone he drew dropped, Jake even passed around the paper. And as it was being passed, it rolled around as the paper got tilted. None of us had any words for it. Hell... What was there to say? But he continued drawing, demonstration after demonstration for us, stick figures in various pageants and plays, doing everything from fighting each other to making perfect human pyramids. And we all thought it was incredible. That was all the go-ahead he needed. He announced that he planned to put on a show to pay for rent and food, where he would draw anything the crowd members wanted. That we talked to some length about, and he eventually convinced us that it would be safe, his drawings ethical, the practice lucrative and unique, and their attention would not go anywhere outside of the town's borders. Poor Jacob. If I'd not been so swept up in the moment, I might have read the signs right then and there, and saved the sorry son of a bitch by snapping the terrible thing in half. But I was younger. We all were and we saw no problem with encouraging him with what we all saw as an incredible experience to be shared with everyone else. Now, he didn't have any big radio or television connections, mind you, and the internet wouldn't come around for another decade. So he decided what all people on shoestring budgets do. He advertised his show with flyers. Flyers might not mean anything to you city folk, but in a small town... They gain a fair glance over from time to time. And what's more, Jacobs managed to stick out by having little figures jump up and down and whatnot to get people's attention. His first show must have gotten nearly 60 or so people. Probably a lot more than that. And his shows were fantastic. Someone would shout out a scene from a play or a comedy sketch and Jake's hand would fly over a white wall like a bird. 
He'd been holding back when he made that stone. That's for damn sure. His illustrations were all spot on, and he could make an incredible human figure in minutes. Come to think of it, I don't remember any of his scenes lasting more than 10 minutes to make. They were all really well done scenes too. Not only could you see a knight charging the castle, Jake would draw the castle's interior as well, like a wedding cake split down the middle. So you could see the knight scale the walls, fight his way through levels to the dungeon, fight back out with the princess, and make a leaping jump off castle parapets onto his getaway horse all in complete silence. Not realistic, no, but that was part of the appeal. None of us went in there expecting something real. When a scene or a sketch was finished, either the characters would leave off a wall or he'd cover the wall with white paint. This was good in a way. It gave those shows a time limit, and that's when he'd finish with all the four walls in the room. Everyone knew the show was over until the paint dried. Jake, meanwhile, was changing in a bad way. I'd mentioned that upon his return, he'd been extremely energetic. Well, that energy, that vitality or fervor or whatever you want to call it, it never left him. Not for an instant. Far from it. It seemed to grow in him. And he enjoyed it all too much. His eyes grew wider. He slept gradually less over time. His statements and opinions more radical and frenzied. And though he never was a pushover, he was starting to make people nervous in his company. A month or two passed, and Jake's audience grew like a wildfire. Nearly everyone in the town paid to see Jake's art in action and he had to rent out larger and larger places for them to sit. He now didn't stop after one scene was done, he moved directly onto the next, put on the next blank space on the wall, sometimes to the intriguing effect of causing scenes to mingle, which the crowd loved. The subject matter got more wild and immoral, the monsters got more bizarre and creative, the fighters using more impossible weaponry, all for the sake of the crowd's interests. Jake got steadily more indulgent, which we figured was from the money, and he became a drinker and a womanizer, neither of which got rid of that vitality by the way. Some of those women claimed that they'd woken up in the middle of the night to see him scribbling with the stick, that stick on a drawing pad, a gigantic grin on his face, and while most of them said that they assumed he was drawing them in the nude, there's rumors that one or two of them got glances at that notepad. Those anonymous few supposedly said that those drawings absolutely weren't nude pictures, but neither of them, whoever they are, will say what he was drawing. Don't bother looking for the notepad or flyers, though. They're all gone now. I'm getting off track. Point is, he was hitting the bottle, and that's important, because it was that drinking that would eventually ruin everything. On the night of one of his performances, as he walked in front of his cheering crowd, it was immediately apparent to everybody that he was completely drunk. I was in the front row, and I could smell the bourbon on him from 10 feet away. The show started. He went through a bunch of sketches and scenarios the crowd recommended, when at the end someone asked that he draw himself. Everyone cheered the idea. I guess they'd be wondering what his creations thought of him. And he eventually obliged. No sooner had Jake finished connecting the final two lines on his coat than every single character across the vast expansive wall all stopped and looked directly at that illustration. Lovers stopped kissing, 
clowns stopped laughing, robots stopped fighting pirates, and looked at the Jacob illustration. The crowd died almost instantly. I remember Jake's face at that moment. Pale. White. Full of terrible comprehension at his mistake. And looking desperately for the cans of white paint he'd forgotten to put out before the show. Everyone else? They were looking at the fake Jacob. That Jacob reached into his jacket pocket, pulled out a black stick of his own, and as we all watched, drew a door. He pushed on his side, and the door swung open, allowing him to walk through onto the floor of the auditorium. The rest was an absolute hellish pandemonium. People screamed and ran for the exits as Jacob's characters, both those currently on the wall and those which had previously left before being covered up, ran out of their own exit, throwing pies, shooting lasers, blowing fire, and poison and the impossible. I was near enough the exit to escape, and gave only one backward glance. The scene will haunt me forever. Jacob Emery was being dragged by his creations, kicking and screaming, through the door his copy had made. The auditorium burned down, but I have no idea how many characters escaped. What happened to the fake Emery, or how many people died? The fire brought the fire department from the nearest cities up to over a hundred miles away. They in turn brought the police force, which brought the government, which hushed up everything. They took the flyers and any art Jake had made, and swore everyone to secrecy or else life detainment. The fire was blamed on a cigarette in the garbage during a basketball game, and we all eventually went on with our lives. Jacob was made to never have existed. In retrospect, I realize everything. Jacob hadn't been creating illustrations. Illustrations don't move, much less act or attack. They're just images people see. Shadows made to look like real things. Jacob had been making a life, actual thinking things in some alternate dimension using a power that was never meant to fall to mortal hands. He got drunk on his power. His punishment was probably well deserved. Incidentally, the government screwed up on two different accounts. They did a damn good job silencing everyone, but proof remains. The ruins are still here, you know. The auditorium's ruins. I hear they're going to start reconstruction soon, which will wipe out any remaining evidence someone can definitely see. But I went back there once, several years after the fire, just once. Admits the rubble, covered in ash, I saw something squirming. I looked closer. It was Jacob Emery's hand on the wall, exactly like it had been three years ago, sweaty but calloused. I remember but it was constantly flailing, as if the body it was supposed to be attached to was still writhing in flames. That was mistake number one. Number two was those creations. Like I said, I don't know how many escaped, nor how many the government agents found and caught, but I will say only this. Those tall grass meadows on the outskirts of town? Don't go into them. Ever. You were asking about those white figures you've seen at night? Right? This town doesn't have ghost stories.
Crossing the Swamp I once read a poem in college called Crossing the Swamp by a woman named Mary Oliver, I think her name was. I remember it opening with the lines, Here is the endless, thick, wet cosmos, the center of everything. At the time when I first read it, I spent so much time trying to interpret the poem metaphorically that I practically ignored the literal aspect of it. I never actually took the time to just sit back and imagine in the literal shoes of the narrator. I never actually pondered what it would be like to wade endlessly through a literal swamp, surrounded and swallowed by endless bog. For here it is, the forever. An infinite mess of phantasmagoric cypress trees beckoning me with their dropping bug-infested Spanish moss. Long snake-like yet oddly snakeless vines grabbing at me to simultaneously pull me out of the knee-deep water and push me under. Where my waterlogged fuzzy carcass could be absorbed by trees, oversaturated with hot, sticky amber sap, pulled down further by the porous mud that I must walk through, pulled down into a mire. And even though I've conquered one mire, I don't think I can conquer this one. Because sometimes it's the literal things that defeat you. I hear a twig snap and turn to see a fleeting figure flickering through the trees. At first I am frightened, but then I tell myself that it was probably just a deer, even though I haven't seen a single animal yet besides the gnats and mosquitoes. So instead of allowing myself to be frightened by it, I decided to carry onward, to focus on getting out of this swamp to treat these mysterious cuts in my abdomen whose origins escape me. In fact, I don't even remember how I got here in the first place, but one thing at a time. Right now, I need to focus on getting out alive before I bleed to death. I trudge on for a few moments before I hear another twig snap behind me, and as I turn towards it, I see another elusive figure, and then another twig snaps, then another, and yet another. Soon I am surrounded by snapping twigs and fleeting figures, racing around me in a dizzying swirl, and no matter how quickly I swivel my head, I cannot catch a decent glimpse of the figures. They get faster and faster, creating a blurred whirlwind around me, and the snapping of twigs is rising into a cacophonous uproar, accompanied by wailing sobs from the figures, getting louder and louder and louder, until silence. Complete and utter silence, everything is still. No water stirs, no breeze blows and no twig snaps. To my left, a cluster of reeds rustles, thrusting up an explosion of gnats, and I see the shape of a person walking towards me through the reeds. I hold my breath, scared that it might be someone dangerous, someone who specifically did something to hurt me recently, though I do not know who. But the person who comes stumbling out of the reeds isn't the stranger who escapes my memory. No, it's a person who I remembered very well and love very much, but who has changed horribly beyond belief. The person who stands before me is my nephew, the nephew who I raised as if he were my own, the nephew that I loved with all my heart, the nephew who broke my heart, the nephew who died more than two years ago. Auntie. He gurgles hoarsely through a mouthful of thick amber tree sap that dribbles down his chin. We stare in shock at each other. Him, 
taking in my muddied and bloodied appearance, and I taking in his dusty, brown, shriveled skin, his lipless mouth, his soiled suit, his skeletal frame, and his empty eye sockets that ooze protrusent black liquid. Is that really you? He asks, voice taut and cracked from death. I slowly nod my head in combined mute horror and refreshed heartbreak. His shriveled head shakes sadly as his gnarled bony fingers unbutton the now dirty suit that he was buried in. The white button-down shirt in stained black and red, and as he solemnly pulls back the shirt, black-red fluid squirts out of the bullet holes in his abdomen. Fluid that is a horrifying mixture of liquid rot and fresh blood, trickling down his legs and tainting the water around him. Why do you show me this? I whispered tearfully, easily heard over the strangely silent swamp. I know what happened to you. I know what that man did to you. Don't blame him. He moans, spitting tree sap out of his mouth as he talks. Don't blame him. But he shot you and left you to die. I say, slowly shaking my head in disbelief, not so much at his words, but at his presence itself. At this, his head snaps suddenly off his neck, and his hands catch it before it can fall into the sticky water. Don't blame him. He repeats, sap oozing out of the opening where his neck used to be attached. Please, please don't blame him. God knows, I don't. How can I not blame him? I sob. He took away the closest thing I had to a son. And because of him, I had to watch, powerless, as you slipped further and further away. No. He answers. I was there the whole time. The only thing slipping away was my humanity. No, don't say that. You weren't there. You were unresponsive in a coma because you hit your head in the concrete. I was there, Auntie. I heard your sobs. I heard your stories. And I felt your tears on my arm. But I couldn't do anything except lay there in silence. No! I wail, splashing to my knees. No, don't say such things. Don't torment me this way. You're not even real. You're not here. You're dead. You're just a hallucination. If you insist. My decomposed nephew sighs sadly, crumbling in on himself and collapsing into the stagnant water. No! I scream, running over to where he stood, ignoring the pain in my abdomen. No, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I take it back. Just please, don't leave me again. Don't leave. I miss you. I need you. Please come back. I'm begging you. I crouch over to feel for his remains in the water, but collapse from pain and dizziness. I painfully drag myself out and crawl towards a sap-soaked tree 
and curl up against its sticky trunk, bawling like a little girl. Like a little girl who just lost everything all over again. Eventually, after I stopped crying, I reapply the mud over my wounds to slow down the bleeding, though I know that it guarantees infection. I can feel the hot sap clinging to my shirt as the mud slowly pulls me down, down into the swamp, down into my past, back to when I first heard that my sister and her husband had been shot in a break-in, back to when I took in my orphaned six-year-old nephew after somebody else would take him in. The mud dragged me through all of the years that I spent raising him, years that until a few minutes ago I managed to put behind me. And then, I was back at my apartment on that cold, lonely January night more than two and a half years ago. When I got the call from the hospital, saying that they had my nephew, that they had been shot and had hit his head on the concrete, and that he was unresponsive. After I arrived at the emergency room, the doctor explained further that my nephew didn't have any identification on him, and that all of the information they had so far on him was from a nearby store clerk who occasionally talked to him. They suspected that he was in an unresponsive coma, but it wasn't until after they ran some tests that they were able to confirm this. At first, I visited him as often as I could. I talked to him, I fed him, I held him. But even though he made no signs of improvement, I always got the distinct feeling that somehow, some way, my nephew was still in there, listening to me and crying silently for help. But there was nothing I could do except try to accept the fact that my nephew was gone. And so after about two months, I stopped visiting as often in the hopes of being able to accept my nephew's situation. Then in June of that year, I finally gave the doctors permission to pull the plug. As people say. After that, I fell into a deeper depression than I'd already been in. At the time, I thought I'd made the right decision. But after he died, I became smothered by a stifling blanket of heart-wrenching guilt and self-hatred. All I could think about night and day was whether or not I did the right thing for my nephew. And then, a little over a year later, I finally made the decision to not beat myself up anymore, to try to forgive myself and move on from the experience. Seven months later, I left Nashville and moved here to New Orleans in the hope of finally leaving that part of my life behind. And I did, for the most part. I got a job and an apartment. I started therapy. Eventually, I managed to actually get myself to a point to where I felt happy again. Except now, six months after the move to New Orleans, this godforsaken swamp is trying to drag me back down again. And so far, it seems to have been working. I get up, weak-limbed and light-headed and start trudging my way through the dirty bog water and giant clouds of gnats and mosquitoes once more, being careful to use my abdominal muscles as little as possible. To distract myself from the pain and dizziness, I turn my focus instead to trying to remember how it was that I got here in the first place. But the truth escapes me, and so, instead I try to read what the weather will hold. I look up and am surprised to see that the sky has gone quickly from bright sweltering summer blue to a foreboding dark grey. I slip on some mud at the bottom of the stagnant water and fall onto the stump of a broken tree branch, which jabs me smartly in the shoulder. As I pull my torn and soggy sleeve to see if it's broken the skin, 
I feel the first fat droplet of rain smack against my head, soon followed by a heavy downpour all around me, and over the sound of the screaming water and pattering leaves, I realize something. I realize that I can remember how I got here. There was a bad thunderstorm last night, with rain so heavy that it was hard to see, and thunder so loud that it shook the buildings. I had been in an Egyptian-themed tea shop called the Nile's Rest, when the thunder had been the worst. After it moved away a bit, I left, hurrying home. Desperate to get out of the torrential downfall, it was then that I was snatched violently into an alleyway. I tried to fight back, and I tried to scream for help, but they were too strong, and my screams were muffled by the rain and the strange smelling rag that the person had over my face. After a few minutes of struggling with the rag over my face, I couldn't move, and it was hard to think. But I remained conscious, as my kidnapper, who appeared to be a woman in black, wearing a plastic dust mask, gagged and tied me up. She then dumped me into the trunk of a car and drove, my bones knocking together at the joints the whole time. I tried to take note of left and right turns, but there were too many to keep track of. The drive seemed to last for hours, and eventually... I passed out from the intense humid heat within the small trunk. Eventually, I found myself being woken up by my kidnapper on a road in the middle of the swamp. Presumably, this one. She dragged me out of the trunk and cut my ties and gag. I tried to run, but in my disorientated state, I didn't make it very far. I slipped on the slick mud. The masked woman caught up with me and held me down, laughing manically as I tried to push her off. She then jumped abruptly off me, and again I tried to run, but after a few moments she caught me by the shoulder, whipped me around, and stabbed me repeatedly in the stomach, laughing insanely the whole time. I collapsed from the pain, and the woman hit me over the head with a rock, knocking me out. Then what I think was this morning, I woke up half buried in the mud in the middle of the swamp, eyes stinging from the bright morning sun glaring at me through a break in the overhead foliage. I dug myself out of the mud, muscles stiff, head pounding, and abdomen throbbing. I lifted my shirt to see that the wounds from the knife had been somewhat clogged by the mud. However, they were still bleeding pretty heavily despite this. So I applied some more mud and started making my way through this bloated bog, surrounded by silence and an odd absence of any animal life. Exhausted and miserable, I now continued onward, hoping that by some slim chance... I chose the right direction to walk in and can find my way out of this swamp before it kills me. The rain and pools of stagnant water won't allow the mud to dry, so I constantly have to stop and reapply more of this fat grassy mud, becoming more entrenched by the emotions of my past with every glistening paint stroke. I can't get the vision I had of my dead nephew out of my head. He was my all, my everything. And to think that I may have cut his life short when he could have gotten better is too much for me to handle. I love my nephew like a mother would love her own son. And that was taken away from me by some stranger who wanted to take his money. Yet my nephew just told me not to blame the man who shot him. But how can I not blame him? He took away the only family I had that I was still close to. And I can't even get that back. Not only that but I had to watch the person I loved most in the world, someone who by all natural rights should have outlived me, 
lie unresponsive in a coma. But now he says that he was there the whole time, listening and thinking and feeling, but powerless to do anything about it. And now that means that I ended his life for no reason, that he was conscious the whole time, and that the doctors were wrong, and that I ultimately killed my nephew. If I can't forgive the man who shot him, how can I now possibly forgive myself? But I moved on. Though I'm exhausted, dizzy, and in pain, I must keep going. I must get out of this nightmare of a swamp whilst I still can. Only then can I figure out what to do with my life now that I know what I've done. But I'm weak and thirsty. But I know I can't drink the water here. I feel increasingly more dizzy and my breathing has become significantly more rapid within the last minute or two. I gently lift up my shirt to see that all of the mud has been washed away and that blood is pouring out like the Nile River. Vaguely, I know that I must cover it with mud to mend myself like Iris mended Osiris, that I must gather the mud like Sobek, the crocodile god, gathered Osiris's body. I bend down to scoop it, my head a cycle of the moon around my body, but the world swirls around me, and I am sent sprawling onto the ground, face up to the cosmos beyond. I'm not sure where I am exactly, whether in Cairo or Giza, or even somewhere else, but I do know that the seasonal monsoon seems to be spinning around me, and that the heavy water stings my face. I close my eyes to the world to wait for the season to end, for whatever comes next. Auntie. 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 Is that you? I open my weary, mud-soaked eyes, at what unprecedented sight I find. That the rain has gone and the wind now sighs, while in this throne is Amun-Ra benign. Auntie, my nephew beckons, now restored, come with us to be together once more. I look down to see my love, heart now moored, standing next to Sobek from Nile Law, god of healing to heal my broken heart, blessing of Osiris, a new fresh start. Up I stand, and firm is the ground I feel, the water dried by Sobek's holy grace. The rain goes on, but there's a set rain seal, here round so it may not taint our place. And my beloved dear holds out his hand, and so I take it joyfully in pace. Towards whatever comes from time's swift sand, my nephew smiles at my saddened face, and now in our hearts Sobek breathes. And he makes the swamp a place of leaves. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed all three stories today. I wanted to spread the story types a little in this episode. A bit of urban legends mixed in with some creepy art tales, then followed up by a more meaningful yet creepy tale of the mind. Either way, I hope you all enjoyed it. Once again, a big shout out to Robert Fisher and to all you lovelies that support the show. And if you have two seconds to spare, swing on by my iTunes page and leave a review. It helps me find more people just like you. And that's exactly who I want listening. Have a fantastic weekend, mates. I'll be watching the new Zombieland this weekend. Having seen the first one and really enjoyed it, I can't wait to see the next one tomorrow. And if you've seen it, let me know what you think. 
Take it easy, mates. Stay awesome. And as always, till next, we meet.